drugs, climate activists, and the power grid. Just another day in the wild world of security. Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I'm your host, Brendan Howard, and today we talk to David Vialpondo, CPP, about protocols for administering medicine for opioid overdoses in your facility. Then, Hans Verdot talks to us about trouble at another facility in Belgium, where climate activists tried to get media coverage, stop work, and damage things at a construction yard at an energy company. And still on energy, Brian Harrell talks about big picture risks to the electric grid and why he still sleeps soundly at night. Okay, so Narcan has gotten a lot of press as this opioid overdose medicine administered up the nostril has become available over the counter in many states. Now, David Vialpondo CPP. He used to be a state law enforcement agent focused on drugs, but now at his job as executive director at the Pokagon Band Gaming Commission in New Buffalo, Michigan, he's got his security teams working in and around casinos trained to know what to do in case someone on premises might be overdosing and when and how to treat with naloxone, the generic name of the medicine. But before we get to the drugs, doesn't it always seem to start with better communication? It's important to stress uh, that uh, if there is a naloxone program, uh, that emergency responders are part of the notification process. So that's typically at the top of the to-do list is make sure that uh, the folks on property, or whether it's security or, um, or or just management staff, that they activate the 911 system, emergency response system. Uh, and then, of course, training, training for staff. It's very simple training, uh, but it's important to receive the training, um, to have a training protocol. And then, of course, uh, acquiring the supplies, making sure that they're current, proper storage and distribution of the supplies. Uh, so in terms of policy, I guess those would be the uh, the high points. Is the training easy and kind of from your perspective and what you've seen, what goes into it? What do people have to know how to do? Yeah, it is. It's very easy. Thanks to um, the, the ease of route of administration of the Loxone, uh, basically the nasal application. Uh, it's determining unresponsiveness, recognizing that the person may be experiencing an opioid overdose, uh, laying them flat, tilting the head back, confirming there's no breaths, applying the uh, medication, uh, and then uh, going through the, the, uh, the regular trauma steps, the ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, and disability. So just the basic first aid. Uh, so this, this, application can be factored into basic first aid. I was going to ask about that. It doesn't sound like necessarily, I mean, when people do Heimlich or CPR, um, I think a lot of times they try to get a trainer boots on the ground with a dummy so people can practice. Is it that important for the application of, of, you know, the brand name Narcan? Is it that important they have a person there and that people physically practice? Or can they watch a video and it's just sort of an add-on to their normal safety training? Uh, it, watch a video. If you can okay. place the applicator in a nostril and depress the plunger, you're good to go. 
where has this bubbled up? So you spent many years as a as a drug agent, and you may have run into these things in that work. Now that you're working in kind of a different area of security, how often does this come up where you work or the people you talk to in your industry? Uh, quite frequently nowadays. Uh, so in um, uh, the DEA just released their 2023 stats, right? So that's uh, uh, looking the year back. And fentanyl overdose, which, which is an, uh, an opioid, is the leading cause of death uh, for people 18 to 45. We lose, what, 120 people uh, on any given day uh, to drug overdose, many of those opioid emergencies. So it's the prevalence of the drug. DEA sees something like 77 million fentanyl pills uh, and over 12,000 pounds of the drug. That's enough of the drug to kill every single American. Uh, so because of the prevalence of fentanyl abuse, opioid abuse in general, other things, Vicodin, hydrocodone, heroin, of course. Uh, but if you add fentanyl into that mix, which is much more concentrated, 200 times more powerful than the average dose of heroin, um, it, it sets us up for the type of um, emergency we have today. The CDC has designated uh, opioid overdose as epidemic in the United States. So the likelihood of uh, folks encountering uh, this dynamic within the workforce, uh, workplace, um, is fairly high. Is it difficult at all for so uh, the security people kind of under your umbrella? A lot of times they are watching out for bad actors. So they're watching for people who they're worrying about theft. They're worrying about trespass. They're worrying about property crimes. They're worried about people getting out of control and getting angry and violent or something. Is it hard to switch the gear on a, on somebody who's focused on security to, oh, no, now this has turned into this isn't a security situation. This is now a health and safety situation. Yeah, good question. No, we deal with health and safety issues all the time, uh, whether it's slip and falls or uh, people that uh, run into gaming devices or, or people in the casino that have disabilities and their disabilities manifest in, in some way, shape or form. Uh, so all of our security officers within the casino have uh, first aid training, uh, medical training. Uh, it's just the recognition of someone in an opioid overdose is unique. You know, you're going to find someone who's likely unconscious labored breathing, you know, they're going to have this, this grunty noise or kind of a, a, a snoring sound, perhaps even foaming at the mouth is one of the indicators. Uh, so it, it pronounces pretty obviously when you have someone who's experiencing uh, a drug overdose uh, and opioids in, in particular. If somebody is in a facility where literally they've never had a situation that they can remember where there's been an opioid overdose, do you still think it's important? I still think you all should be ready. Either someone, again, who's working there or someone who's come onto the property, you need to be ready for this. Yes, absolutely. And I'll give you one example. So according to medical practitioners, one of the populations that's uh, under address with regard to opioid overdose are women and the elderly. Uh, so many elderly folks are prescribed fentanyl, fentanyl patches. Uh, and it's very easy for uh, someone of advanced age to not remember that they put a patch and place another patch, creating an overdose situation. So e even unintended exposure. Uh, we have law enforcement and security officers 
who run into suspicious substances. Uh, and if you're not careful in the handling, uh, particularly with, uh, with fentanyl and how concentrated it is, you can inhale the drug and experience uh, an unintended overdose. Uh, so there are many circumstances where folks can become exposed and find themselves in uh, medical trauma intentionally in the form of drug addicted individuals, but also unintentionally. And is there any difficulty you've run into um, the cost of the drug or the cost of the training? Have you ever heard of it being either cost prohibitive so that organizations are like, I don't know if we have to have that on site. That sounds too expensive to have. And then when the stuff ages out, when this medication ages out to get new Narcan, new naloxone, I, I don't know, maybe we'll leave it for now. Yeah, another great question. So uh, naloxone has been around uh, for 50 years. Um, and, and I remember in, in 1985 with the, with the transition from uh, powder heroin, whether it's Mexican brown or China white, uh, to a very concentrated form, black tar heroin, the number of overdoses that we encountered in law enforcement, absolutely tremendous. Uh, and people died because the emergency responders couldn't get there in time with the hypodermic syringes of naloxone. In 2015, the FDA approved the nasal applicator for naloxone. Uh, and virtually any first responder, in fact, any citizen, uh, in 2023, the FDA approved over-the-counter sales of naloxone. So it's very easy for folks to acquire. Um, you can, uh, and 41 states have naloxone safety programs. Uh, so most of the states have a program, in fact. And there's two dynamics there. One, it makes it accessible to just about anybody. Uh, you can order it online. Amazon sells naloxone, uh, Narcan, uh, $45 for a two-pack. So it's not cost prohibitive, but here's the great thing. In those states that have programs, many local jurisdictions, public health departments, will provide it to citizens and businesses for free. All they ask is that you go through their program which is anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes on the administration of naloxone, and you can acquire it for free. Uh, so here in, at our casinos, our public safety folks, uh, both our tribal police department as well as our casino security, acquire it from, uh, from the health services uh, department. Uh, that, that's how it's provided. So it's very cost effective uh, for businesses starting a naloxone program. Need to update your naloxone protocols and training? There's a toolkit with all kinds of handy info that VL Pondo recommends as a good starting point. It's in the show notes. Now, turning from medicine to climate change, Hans Verdot, Chief Security Officer, European Hub for energy company Engie, is speaking at ASIS Europe in March on his company's run-in with climate change activists. So, what happened? Well, we had a pre-announced, uh, so we were uh, aware up front that something uh, would be happening. Um, but eventually, what really happened is that we had uh, one of our sites was blocked by activists. Uh, that happened in the early uh, days of July 2023. And during that incident, that what was on a construction plant uh, in the south of uh, Belgium, um, they also started some uh, distraction operations around other sites. 
So it was like a, some sort of a military plant uh, operation um, where they created some noise around the incident. So it was very difficult for us to judge uh, what was really going on and what would be the real impact of the whole uh, thing. And basically what they did is that they occupied the site with, with about uh, 700 uh, activists, which is quite a big group. Um, we weren't really expecting that amount of people, but uh, well, in the end, uh, that's what uh, occurred. And due to the fact it was a project site, w which means that fencing is not really up to date and that sort of things, that uh, well, it was quite easy for them to hit through. Um, besides of the the, the organization around project sites, which is, which is quite complicated, they also used some tooling to get through. So they had. Uh, like military gear to get through. Um, let's let's uh, <laughs> state it that way. You mentioned that, well, we knew something was going to happen around this time. How much were you able to prepare for the incident and what happened during the incident that was a surprise? Either it was the multiple sites or the gear they had or the tactics they used. How did you prepare beforehand and how was it different than what actually happened? Well, we know uh, up front that we would be uh, visited, if we can call it that way. We also uh, spotted some reconnaissance uh, operations around other sites because we have about 15 uh, production sites in the um, radius of, of 100 kilometers uh, around Belgium, in and around Belgium. And the real target was not really mentioned. The only thing we spotted up front is that we had a map with all our locations on it, with the type of uh, fuel we were using. So they were well briefed about uh, what our uh, current production uh, park was. Um, so we prepared basically any site um, because the, the whole idea for us is was to make sure that we continue to produce energy. And since this was a project site, well, the, the, there was a bit less effort put into that, also because of the size and the complexity, because uh, energy power plants and, and basically those old power plants that were extremely large, so three to four kilometers fencing, uh, well, that's not, that's not really easy to defend. In the end, what surprised us was the, the tactics they applied. They used three different ways to attack the site with groups of 50 people really in front of the rest of the groups. Those 50 people were better trained, better skilled, better equipped. They used masks, they had radios. You saw a very, very tight synchronization because our, we were following live the, the event through uh, CCTV systems. But basically, you're not able to stop. The thing is in Europe as well is that, um, well, using force or using violence to stop that sort of uh, activism is not the first priority for police forces. So that's taking that into account um, yeah, was really complicated to stop them. Because in the end, the real impact on the site was quite limited. Well, they occupied the site for about uh, three to four days. Okay, we had construction delays. They did some environmental damage. They uh, broke down some hoses. We had some uh, spillages into the ground. But in the larger scope of things, it was not that bad. Okay, annoying. Not a lot of publicity. That was maybe our <laughs> our main aim as well, uh, because those groups are, are always trying to get uh, policemen to 
to to attack them to to create violence because then they can can play uh, some other games around that so we avoided any sort of violence we removed all the branding around ng from the side so they had difficulties when they were filming there was no nowhere some branding of ng uh, around that so we we tried to play the game a bit with them um uh, by yeah when they were in okay let them do uh it was 29 degrees um for them, it looked a bit like a, like a festival site uh, at a certain moment, playing uh, like kids playing with 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 toys and that sort of thing. So, um, but of course, it is illegal. It is occupying a site. It is delaying construction. So, in the end, we cannot accept this uh, as a society. Retroactively, looking back at what happened, it sounds like some of the preparation was very successful. Are the things you learned about this kind of incident things moving forward? Like, what are some of the lessons that you learned? One of the main things is that, and, and that has to do with, with, with organization around the police organization within our countries, is that the direct control of law enforcement is uh, the responsibility of the local mayor. If the local mayor does not decide to upscale, then you're pretty much, for this sort of incidents, you're pretty much a sitting duck. Um, that means that we need for the further um, yeah, project sites, but also for existing uh, running sites, we need different fencing. We need uh, tougher barriers. We don't need dogs. We don't need um, security guards because security guards are pretty much not allowed to, to, to stop uh, or use violence. So it, we need to probably uh, reinforce our sites, uh, maybe turn our, our sites into prison sites, well, to keep the people out, not in. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would be probably the most, um, yeah, from a practical point of view, the most uh, things that we learned. From a preparation point of view, I, I strongly believe intelligence and cooperation with um, the whole security network would be yeah, probably very m more efficient because we've seen that this same group has done some other activities recently. Uh, so they tried to occupy one of the uh, two, two main uh, airports in Belgium. One succeeded more or less. It was a cargo uh, airport and the other one, well, they didn't succeed because the police really hit on them. Um, but hours up front. So they stopped the incoming streams before they can, could even reach the sites. And they were well prepared. So they're, they upgraded and they upscaled already their uh, intelligence capacity because the way we've, I, I've seen some images on, on, on public television, the way they handled it was completely different than that, that, uh, the way they did it uh, on our sites. But again, another mayor, another type of preparation, an airport, which is a running operation, is different than a project site. Uh, it was in December, different timing than, than July, where we have a holiday season. So circumstances, contexts, local facilities, availability of, of uh, guarding and police forces, everything is, is different. So, uh, But in general, so for us, reinforcing the sites, um, using different type of fencing um, and, and intelligence, and that is for more uh, a cooperation between, when, between us and, uh, and the public uh, enforcement agencies. Um, can I ask about that? So building the profiles about these activist groups in advance to gather more information about them, does it always feel like the relationship you have with law enforcement in your country to get that intelligence is better and better? Or is it always sort of town by town, you know, area by area? Is it improving or is it always hard? 
It is hard. Um, we always, f well, always, we often uh, see that it is a one-way intelligence stream. So what we know, we can happily share it with um, public government agencies. The other way around is informal. It is yeah based on personal relationships with with with, uh, with with individual people. It is not really efficient and. We had some uh, meetings with, with um, Central Intelligence here in, in, in Brussels. At that time, and so I'm speaking about May last year, uh, April and May last year, the formal reply was that climate activism was not seen as a real issue. They still considered it as uh, young people dem demonstrating uh, some older people that are uh, yeah, waving with, with some, some, some signs and that sort of things, but not this sort of things. Well, I, probably that vision on things has evolved and, and that's, that's what happens with incidents. We learn from it, they learn from it, and then we adapt. So that sometimes tough relationship with governmental entities is a worldwide phenomenon. Feel better? Well, hopefully this next interview makes you feel a little better too. Yes, the electric grid is at risk, according to Brian Harrell, who is former Assistant Secretary for Infrastructure Protection at Department of Homeland Security, and now VP and Chief Security Officer with energy company Avangrid. But there are lots of good people working on securing that electric grid. So first, Let's be straight up with those threats. The utility industry, I think, has made some significant investments in digital security and infrastructure security and certainly in resilience uh, as well. You know, while we continue to shore up our known risks, I think we're also trying to use the A word. I use that a lot, and that is anticipate what is coming next, uh, what is emerging. Uh, and frankly, let's be creative because... Uh, the enemy certainly is going to be as well. You know, I think there's a few big areas that we're very focused on, uh, certainly intelligence. You know, I would put up the energy sector's uh, intelligence capability against any others. Uh, a lot of good investment, a lot of great people have come out of federal space and into uh, the utility sector to really get ahead of, you know, that CNN moment, right? Let's just try and figure out what's happening. Let's monitor chats. Let's put sensors on our system and let's get ahead of threats before they actually uh, materialize. Two, it is that third party risk management and frankly, keeping China out of our supply chains. And then lastly, it's really embracing ITOT physical security convergence, right? Rarely do we see a cyber only attack or a physical only attack. Today, that threat landscape is very, very blended. Thus, we need to have organizations that reflect that as well. Can I ask for security professionals that themselves do not directly touch the electric grid, but obviously anyone who's using electricity anywhere in the country has to think about this. Are there things you think security professionals should think about in their own organizations and facilities and companies about how the electric grid interacts with their security systems, their company? Yeah, I think the power grid uh, or you know energy systems as we know them, uh, certainly I view them as the being the most critical infrastructure 
sector that that we have. You know, we're not doing a whole lot in our day job without the power being flipped on, right? And so uh, I will tell you, there's a lot of great individuals, a lot of great subject matter expertise uh, that's in the energy sector right now. And, you know, they're trying to go beyond the firewall. They're trying to go beyond just the perimeter fence. And I suspect everyone else is uh, as well. So again, being creative, thinking big because the enemy is uh, as well. But in addition to the basic blocking and tackling, you know, that, that everyone is doing, we're focusing on on drones, uh, insider threat, on exercises, having sensors on our system. We're doing threat hunting every single day to try and get ahead of issues before they materialize. Overall, having spent a lot of time thinking about the power grid and electricity and, and securing it, are you more optimistic today, less optimistic? Do you do you worry a lot about what's going on or do you feel solid about what's happening in your industry? You know, I think in the corporate security space within the utility sector, uh, the portfolio is gigantic, right? It's cybersecurity, it's physical security, it's business continuity, it's intelligence, it's insider threat, it's, uh, it's compliance. And so there are no boring days. But I will tell you that each and every night that I go to sleep, I go to sleep soundly. Uh, we have built in redundancy. I think we have tried to remove a lot of the single points of failure that you see in the system. And a lot of really good investment and people are focused on the security and the resilience and the reliability of the power grid. And can I ask, you mentioned at the very top, kind of, obviously people think of a lot of bad actors. So thinking about climate activists that hit power plants, um, cyber attacks from other countries, but you mentioned, oh, kind of internal stuff. From your perspective, is it tougher, these, these large external threats, or is it kind of the contractor you work with or the, the third-party manufacturer you work with who you don't know they have a connection to a country or you don't know that their security is troubled? Is it the big things outside or is it things you're actually, you don't know you're tied to that are the bigger danger? You know, we have uh, no shortage of threats, uh, domestic violence extremists. We have environmental uh, extremists. Uh, we have people who just simply want to do damage because they view their electric bills are a little too high that day. Uh, but in addition to all of that, uh, we have nation state adversaries from overseas that are very focused on what are we doing in the utility sector to shore up and protect our systems. But to your point, uh, there are a number of insider threats as well. I'm absolutely convinced that the next major attack that happens in the critical infrastructure space doesn't necessarily happen from outside uh, the perimeter fence or even outside the firewall. It happens from within. People who have keys to the kingdom, they know what the crown jewels, they have administrative access to make significant changes to the system. It is internal concerns um, and threats that I think we should we need to be equally monitoring as well, because frankly, they can be just as devastating. And can I ask, from, from what you've looked at, are these internal threats, so inside the firewall, on the other side of the fence with you, are most of them inadvertent negligence where these things bubble up and someone takes advantage of them, or are they a deliberate internal damage? I think it certainly can be both. Uh, you have the, uh, the deliberate, somebody who's actively trying to do damage, and then you have the accidental or the innocent insider where uh, out of ignorance, they accidentally click on something and now they're introducing malware uh, into the system regardless of their motivation, they can be equally as damaging. And so we need to have process techniques, uh, procedures in place to address all insider threats. 
My last question, without revealing any inside insider baseball, is there anything that has you really optimistic about the future of security as it relates to the work you do on the power grid or things that are happening on the power grid that have you like, I think things are going to be better in the future? You know, I think the public-private partnership um, is dramatically more improved today than it ever has been. If you go back to, uh, you know, I've been doing this a long time. You go prior to 9-11, you weren't getting information from the feds. This idea of information sharing uh, was almost non-existent. Yet today, I am suffering from the exact opposite. It is information overload. Uh, I think industry owners and operators of critical infrastructure, they are inundated with information. It's so much so that it has become white noise. And so now I think from an owner operator perspective, we need to rack and stack. What are those crown jewels? What are the things that we really care about and really focus our threat streams, our data streams, our intelligence on those crown jewels? And then like every other layered approach, we kind of work our way out. Uh, But the information sharing mechanisms today, significantly more improved. And I'm very encouraged by that. Isn't it always better communicating and sharing? So you can get Brian's article detailing a lot more about the threats and the promise in power grid security in the show notes. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, David Villalpando, CPP, Hans Verdeot, and Brian Harrell. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. There is no reason the world shouldn't know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. And you can find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.